Getting sober requires a lot more than mind over matter, a lot more than willpower. It's about leveraging the support around you. People in recovery typically need a mix of medical help, emotional support, and changes in lifestyle to manage their addiction, not just mental determination. As both a therapist and someone embracing the recovery lifestyle, there's one tool I always recommend to people needing extra accountability, Soberlink. Soberlink is a high-tech breath analyzer system designed to help you get and stay sober. And here's why I love it. You'll test the same day every day, eliminating testing anxiety. Friends and family receive instant test results, helping you rebuild trust and preventing relapse. Accountability is a part of that, and it's something to really be embraced. Devices have built-in facial recognition, so your support circle knows you're testing, and tamper-resistant sensors flag any attempts at trying to beat the system, so your sobriety is never questioned. So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters. And what do I even say other than hey... Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Addicted Mind. We are on to episode 87 my name is Dwayne Osterland, and I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Novus Mindful Life Institute Family Counseling Recovery Center in Long Beach, California. If you or anyone you know is struggling with any of life's challenges, reach out to us. You can find out about us at theaddictedmind.com help. Don't forget, if you are enjoying The Addicted Mind, please rate and review us in iTunes or share the podcast with a friend. And think about joining our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast and click join and continue the conversation there. And if you're interested, please share your story of hope. Go to the website, theaddictedmind.com, click on the tab on the side, and you can share a 90-second audio clip of your message of hope to other people out there who might be struggling. I'd love to get your voices on the podcast as well. And if you've done that, I really appreciate it and thank you so much. All right, today's guest is Alex Katahakis, somebody who I've wanted to have on the podcast for quite some time and I'm so excited she decided to come on. She is a clinical sexologist and the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, California. And she's written several awesome books. One of my favorite is Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation and also Erotic Intelligence and Mirror of Intimacy. We have a great conversation about some of the root causes of the addictive process, really looking at that early developmental trauma and how that affects our ability to regulate our affect and how we use addictive substances or processes to escape from that feeling. It's a great conversation. I really enjoyed having Alex on. I think we could have talked easily 
for an hour or two or three about these topics. She's so knowledgeable and just really shares a lot of great wisdom and insight about recovery. So with that, let's go ahead and start this episode. Hello, everyone. Welcome to The Addicted Mind. My guest today is Alex Katahakis, and she is a clinical sexologist and clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex in Los Angeles, California. And she's going to come on and we're going to talk about sex addiction. Sex addiction is affect dysregulation, and we're going to go into a little bit of what that means. But Alex, you want to introduce yourself first? Yeah, thank you. Good morning, Dwayne. Yes, as you stated, I am a clinical sexologist, which means I have a doctorate in human sexuality. And I've been fascinated with human sexuality for the last 25, 30 years or longer, you could say my whole life. And so after practicing as a licensed marriage family therapist for 25 years, it made sense for me to dive deeper into human sexuality instead of psychology, which is why I chose that particular course of study. And as you stated, I am the clinical director of the Center for Healthy Sex, which has been around now for about 15 years. And we treat all manner of sex and love addiction, issues of sexual desire, dysfunction, pelvic pain disorders, erectile dysfunction. I mean, you name it. If it's sexual, we treat it. So that's in general what my the lens is through which I look. And just in addition to human sexuality, I have been studying with Dr. Alan Shore for the past 12 years, specifically looking at developmental neuroscience and how the early formation of the infant, meaning from the third trimester on, really impacts the developing brain nervous system, and therefore mind. Right, definitely. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to have you on is to kind of do a little bit of a deeper dive into some of these issues around addiction, specifically sex addiction. And when you say affect dysregulation, going into that a little bit and being able to talk about that. Okay. When we talk about affect, we're really talking about emotions and emotions live deep in the body. In fact, right now, if you're listening to this or you have a pulse, you're having emotions in the body, which aren't necessarily registering up high, meaning up in your brain until they come forward to what we call feelings. And so when a person is dysregulated, meaning they don't have good heart rate variability. They're not able to rest and digest and play and laugh and be at ease. If they are stressed out, then their affect is, quote, dysregulated. So when you're regulated, you are in a, a steady state, if you will, where you're able to socially engage with people in a way where you don't feel threatened. But as soon as threat comes on the scene, if a child has a parent that's alcoholic or raging or a mother who is cold or shut down or mean, that child's affect is always going to be, quote, dysregulated, and he or she is always going to be looking for something to make them feel better because the parental connection, the parental soothing is not reliable or it's just not there. So tell me a little bit about how that, because that's a lot to digest what you just said. Oh, I thought I made it simple. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I get it. But like, if you're talking to someone who is struggling with addiction, let's say, or like struggling with sex addiction, and you're talking about this affect, what might that look like in an event that they have in their own life now in the present? 
Well, there may not, there's not even an event in their general waking life. They're going to feel anxious, depressed, dead internally, dull. There's a general lack of feeling of vitality in the body. People say they don't feel joy states or they're super anxious, so they have to drink to make the anxiety go away, or they use sex to make themselves feel powerful or good about themselves. Anything that we're doing outside of ourselves to make ourselves feel, quote, right internally speaks to affect dysregulation. So someone who is securely attached, who's got a good heart rate variability in general, doesn't have to reach for anything to change their internal state or their mood. Is that clear? Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think what I hear you saying is, so someone who, if you've had this history of trauma, like you said, an alcoholic parent that's raging and you're young and you're growing up in that environment, you get, you're living with this uncomfortable state and you can't get out of that state. And so then you'll reach for something that will change it. So alcohol or sex or... And for a young child, it can be something like fantasy. You know, what we see in a lot of uh, love addicts or some sex addicts too, is that very early on, they learned that they had to get their needs met by themselves. And fantasy is a form of mild to moderate dissociation where it's, you know, what Shore calls an escape when there's no escape, where they go into their own little world and they live in their own little world. And as adults, it makes it difficult to connect with another person, to have intimacy and closeness. Instead, the person is in fantasy about other people because it's very difficult to be in reality because reality was so painful a long time ago. And this sets people up for very bad relationships sometimes because they're falling in love with an ideal, not an actual person. Right. And I think for a lot of people, this is can be subtle in some ways. So it can be hard to actually see that uncomfortable state. Is it that people are used to it? Like they've kind of lived in this state that is basic discomfort that it's hard to actually see it. And then they don't even know that they're regulating it by using a substance or an addiction or something. Yeah, I think people don't know until their lives become unmanageable. They start to have messes in their lives and their primary relationship is with the behavior or the substance. And that's typically when addicts get help is when they're in pain, they know that their life isn't working anymore. And so they're kind of stuck Yeah, they're stuck in these patterns because we are nothing but automated and habituated. I mean, we have all of these adaptive strategies. When the brain and the nervous system start working in a particular way to compensate for difficulty, that is an adaptation. And we can adapt to just about anything. We're highly adaptable creatures. So we'll adapt to something that's dysfunctional because it's better than the problem we were living in. And then we've got this long-standing pattern that can be very challenging to change. So for example, if somebody stops drinking or using, or they stop acting out with their sex addiction, it doesn't mean that they've changed their personality, which is why the program talks about, you know, character issues. 
And you can be a, quote, dry drunk because you've stopped the thing, the behavior, the substance, but you haven't fundamentally changed the way that you relate to other people. And that's really the challenge and the beauty, I think, of the 12-step program is that it really forms and forges new people, that we can change our strategies. And it's hard. It's like if you walked your whole life pigeon-toed and your toes were turned in and your hips were adapted to walking that way, and somebody came along and said, hey, you don't have to walk that way. You're kind of grinding the bones of your hips and your knees. If you point your toes straight, all of a sudden your knees and hips are in alignment and you try it and you're like, wow, that feels better. But the natural tendency of the body is going to be to move towards being pigeon-toed unless the person is highly mindful of it and vigilant about it until they can change that adaptive pattern to walking straight. And that could take a good six months or a year and wearing corrective shoes and going to physical therapy. And it's a lot of work, but it's doable. Right. And recovery is the same way. Right. And that makes a lot of sense, you know, for people that they have to give themselves time to be able to change that. As you were talking, one of the things that came up for me was the idea of willpower. When you say we're mostly uh, automated or did you say reactive or automate patterns? Well, we're we, the history of a series of patterns. It makes me think about willpower and what does that mean and what role does that have in this process? Well, you know, there are books written about that and it's a very cognitive orientation to changing things. And willpower comes from our prefrontal cortex, which is the biggest part of the brain. It's the biggest operating system. It takes the most oxygen to stay online and so if the organism is under duress, if you're super stressed out, it's very difficult to keep that system online. But if you can just will yourself to do something, you're able to, in some ways, sort of corral the upset that's in your body and your chest and your gut and your feeling state. Sometimes that's useful, but it's not always the way to change these patterns. In fact, if they are longstanding patterns where you've got problems with the circuits between the top part of the brain and the lower regions of the brain, you really need to do longer term psychotherapy where you can start to feel into the body and feel today what you couldn't feel as a child. And that actually rekindles those circuits. So you actually go back and begin to experience that in a new way. You feel those feelings, but in a therapeutic environment so that you can experience it in a new way? Well, you can have it regulated for the first time. So when you were a child, if you were upset and scared, there was no one there to soothe you. And so you reached for masturbation or fantasy or, you know, comic books or, you know, maybe even drinking. But if you can go back in therapy and tell that story and allow yourself to feel what you couldn't feel then, in the face of a therapist that is kind and able to be with you, that simple act of having someone bear witness to and be able to breathe with you is a co-regulatory process. In other words, the therapist's nervous system is able to soothe and regulate your nervous system the way a mother would with a child. And that simple act, even though it's complex, starts to allow those circuits that were previously down to start to reconnect again so that you start to feel vital and alive and even happy over time. Right. I have the same when I work with clients that in a way we heal through the eyes of others. 
Yeah, for sure. I mean, if we could sit at home and talk to ourselves and feel better, we would do it. But that generally doesn't go anywhere. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't seem to work. <laughs> I want to go back a little bit and keep talking about willpower because it sounds something like a lot of times when people who maybe had a good enough childhood where they aren't affect dysregulated and they're able to switch, I think it, for people like that, it can be really hard to look at somebody who struggles with an addiction and, and goes, why don't you just do the same thing? Why don't you just regulate yourself and don't do that? Right. Or get over it. Or get over it. And I think this kind of shows, really talks about how this is really, when you're in that addictive state or that affect dysregulation, that it really is beyond willpower, a big chunk of it. Oh yeah, it is. Because look, again, if you imagine that the cortical, the top part of the brain and the subcortical, the midbrain and the brainstem on the right side of the brain are nothing but a series of circuits. If you think about the cartoon that depicts an atom with all those crazy little circuits, you know, rolling around that are nonlinear and looping, when somebody is secure and regulated, those circuits are firing and they're all online. With someone who has been terribly abused and depressed, those circuits are down. They are not coupled. And so that lack of coupling is what creates a deadness at the core. And in order for those circuits to come back up, it requires the care of other people, a love relationship that's healthy, a therapist that is loving and kind and present and compassionate, 12-step fellows. We know from 12-step literature or from the academic literature that 12-step programs help people change these strategies because it's a come-as-you-are program. No one's judging you. People say, let's go to breakfast or a sponsor says, let's talk about that. And you can make phone calls during the day. People actually show up and they care. And that makes a world of difference uh, because human beings are gregarious creatures. We need other people to survive. We really can't go it alone. Right. We need other people. We need to be able to connect, definitely. And so being able to create that place for yourself, if you're struggling with addiction, you got to create that place for yourself so that you can find those other people that can be there for you and in a way care for you. Right. And if ever an addict, a new addict in recovery were to use his or her willpower, that would be the place to do it, to say, you know what? I know this sucks. I don't want to go to that meeting. I'm not like those people. I hate it. Right. But I'm going to make myself go anyway. If you can use your willpower that way, that will serve you to just show up, you know, one day at a time, one step at a time, and suspend your judgment about it and your ego and just keep going. At some point, it will shift and change. And I would imagine too, because when we look at like things like sex addiction, we also call it an intimacy disorder. So if you've had this interpersonal trauma in the beginning of your life, connecting with other people alone can feel threatening. Yeah, because if you grow up not trusting people, and that you can't get your needs met from other people, it feels very threatening. And that's why, you know, there's an, a folk adage that you just go to six meetings and you just listen for the similarities and not the differences. And you suspend your judgment and there will be good meetings and weird meetings because meetings are just made up of other people. Right. And, you know, but when somebody says hello to you or shakes your hand or says welcome, you need to be able to take that in. 
and say, okay, I'm going to take a leap of faith here. I'm going to do my best to see if I can pick out the people that feel like they know what they're doing. Right. Find people that can care for you. Go out and do it. If that's the only thing you can put your energy into, I think that's great advice. Put your energy into that and go find people that can care for you. So I had another question because you wrote a book that I really like and have informed a lot of my work around this. It's Sex Addiction as Affect Dysregulation. Can you talk about writing that book and a little bit about what that means to you? Well, writing that book is probably the most difficult thing I've ever done. It took me probably three years. It was supposed to take two because I was so interested in making sure I got it, quote, right. And there's so much debate about whether sex addiction is real or not. I started to conceptualize it from this position of dysregulated affect that it wasn't enough for me to say, oh, it's a behavioral problem or it's a cognitive problem. If somebody's engaging in a problematic behavior, what is the underlying mechanism that drives that? Because people say, I feel like I'm out of control. I feel like an addict. But that's because something inside is making them do something they don't want to do. And We've all had this experience with, you know, going to a bakery or being at a party and there's a cake and you're like, oh, don't eat it. And another voice says, eat it, don't eat it, eat it, don't eat it. Right. Right. I can relate to that. <laughs> we can all relate to that. And at some point you just cave in and eat it. And then afterwards you feel sick and think, why did I do that? And you're doing it because of all these underlying mechanisms. That might just be a one-time thing. But for people that really struggle with this ability to regulate, themselves because nobody did it for them in the right way as an infant or a child, they don't have the capacity to stand up to that voice. And it's not just a lack of willpower, it's physically depleting internally. And so I really looked at the underlying issues from infancy forward, then started to look at the science about why we conceptualize this problem as an addiction, and specifically sex addiction, which Patrick Karn started talking about in 1983. But prior to that, as early as 1978, a man named Orford in the United Kingdom was looking at it. And even way prior to that in the 1800s, people were talking about this as an affliction. And so if you look at the book, Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde, and you look at it closely, you'll see that that's not just about alcoholism, that it's about sex also. So Patrick Carnes, you know, did an enormous amount of work when he put sex addiction on the map. And as early as 2005, he laid out diagnostic criteria for sex addiction that's largely been ignored by the therapeutic community until 2012 when the American Society of Addiction Medicine made a public policy statement and they included sex as an addiction in that policy statement. And that was a big deal and a big victory for people that struggled with the problem. I think it was 2011. And now in 2018, we have a proposed diagnosis for the International Coding Book, what's called the ICD, of Compulsive Sexual Behavior Disorder. And they're using, you know, not their criteria are not as robust as Carnes are from 2005, but nonetheless, they have criteria. And so it's being recognized more and more by the scientific community as a bona fide problem and it's not just about behaving badly. It's not just about being oversexed. 
what else do people say about it? It's not just a moral issue that people are, you know, they have shame about it and it's against their morality, therefore they think they're addicts. A good sex addiction therapist would never diagnose someone as a sex addict if they were having a moral struggle with their sexual behavior or if they had just had an affair or they looked at porn. Right. It's not just that. It is about this compulsivity that takes place and this inability to regulate all of that. And it's pervasive. It's sort of reaming every area of their life, social, occupational, financial, familial. People try to stop. They can't. They don't enjoy it. They're in pain about it. It's a horrible affliction. And it's horrible that people make fun of it in the way that they do. Yeah, I totally agree. And I love that your book helps people see this in a new way and offers them a lot of hope because it is, it's hard to see people who are struggling with this because it is miserable. It can be so miserable. Yeah. And it's changeable. It's highly changeable and fixable. In fact, I would say if people really put their best foot forward, they'll feel remarkably different in 30, 60, 90 days. And in a year, you can change your life if you show up and do the work. Yeah. And once again, going back to what you said earlier, using your willpower to show up to people who can care about you and help you heal. Right. Uh, That's just critical. Yeah, I love that. That's kind of a great slogan that you made there. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Well, I'm very passionate about this work too. And I do a lot of this and healing, you know, helping people heal and walk through this because it's so hard to see. Not only do they suffer themselves, but all the people they care about suffer as well. And so when they heal, all those people begin that healing process too. And it's such a positive thing. I have one more question for you. So looking at sex addiction and seeing that as this affect dysregulation and this early trauma, how do you see this younger generation growing up with internet porn who are struggling with uh, an addiction to this porn or compulsivity to pornography and maybe they don't have as much trauma in the background or maybe they do, I don't know. I just wonder what your thoughts are about that. Well, that's a whole new world. And I just want to state that pornography addiction, straight pornography addiction is different than sex addiction. Because many people that get hooked on porn did not have, you know, early childhood or infantile trauma or were abused. They were just really young. They started looking at it early and their brains got wired, adapted, if you will, in a particular way. And so, you know, we look at that differently. But I think it's incredibly challenging. I have a number of clients now that started looking at porn as early as eight years old. And in fact, eight is the average age that males look at internet pornography, which is just shocking because of the impact it has on the central and autonomic nervous system, meaning the brain and the body. If you think about a child looking at something, you know, if a child looks at a scab on an adult's arm, they'll look at that and say, ew, that's gross. Imagine them seeing genitalia in the way it's portrayed in pornography and the violence in many cases against females in pornography, how radically disgusting and arousing and confusing that is to a child that age. And yet we know when neurons fire together, they wire together. And that is an adaptive strategy. It's also how we learn 
And so over time, that becomes the primary regulating mechanism for that child. They don't go to their friends. They don't go to their parents. They just hole up in their rooms. It looks like they're doing their homework and they're really looking at porn. And then oftentimes, by the time they're in their early 20s, they have problems. They have problems of what we know can be porn-induced erectile dysfunction. They have problems being in real relationships with real people because what I hear from young people is that it's, quote, awkward. And, you know, part of dating and falling in love is awkward. It's weird. Right, right, yeah. But going through those developmental phases are in essential in order to understand what it feels like to be intimate with someone. And intimacy is not sex. Intimacy is relational, looking into someone's eyes, holding hands, feeling that wild excitement and also discomfort at the same time and feeling awkward and tolerating that so you can build capacity. Right. I think that's so well said. And I think too, what we're seeing with internet porn is I always wonder, I just don't think our brains were adapted to this kind of pornography uh, no. and this kind of constant novelty, endless novelty. I just don't think our brains were adapted to um, handle that. They're not. And especially, I hate to go back to this, but males have a tendency, you know, to really be grabbed by this digital information more so than females. Girls can get bored of it because they tend to be more relational early on. I mean, girl babies read faces long before boy babies can read faces, which is why girls are easier to soothe as infants than boys are in general. Boys are more sensitive. They're less mature at birth. They certainly catch up, but boys are very, very sensitive and delicate creatures. And yet, you know, we don't treat them that way. We tell them to man up when they're three or four and act like a man and stop crying and all of that nonsense. And so boys need a lot of you know, stewarding into adolescence and teenage years because they're so sensitive. And this material is so radical and so violent that it doesn't allow for a real understanding and learning about sexuality and intimacy and eroticism from a more, I would say, holistic place. Yeah, and when they're coming into the office, you can just see that struggle of the difficulty connecting with people they really care about or want to love and that struggle between that pornography and the person they want to love. And not just that, but the difficulty in making those connections and that intimacy and building and moving through all of those emotions. Right. And I think that's one of the reasons I wrote Erotic Intelligence and Mirror of Intimacy is to point people in the direction of healthy sex. So, you know, to be clear for our listeners, first you have to stop all the problematic behaviors and really commit to your own personal recovery. And the next stage after that is looking at your sexuality and how do you build an erotic, healthy, fun sexuality for you where you own your sexuality, it doesn't own you? Because sex addiction is not about not having sex, which is a myth that, other, that people propagate. Sex addiction recovery is about having great sex and fun sex that is true for your value system and your particular integrity. And so sexual rehabilitation is a big part of recovery from sex addiction. And I would say drugs and alcohol. Because if people are just having drunk sex, they're not really having sex. Right, exactly. Yeah, all of that connected part of it that brings a lot of meaning to our lives is gone. And if you don't have any of that, you're going to be lost. So we're kind of coming up on our time. 
if anybody out there is listening to this podcast and maybe they're struggling with this issue, what would you want to tell them? What would you want to say to them? Well, I guess the first thing I would want to say is don't despair that there is help and millions of people get help in 12-step programs around the world without ever going to therapy if you can't afford therapy. If you can, you certainly should find a qualified sex addiction therapist who has treated this problem before, who can point you in the right direction so you're not wasting time, energy, and money. And then to really surrender to the program, to trust the people around you that have walked this path before you and just do what you need to do in order to focus on getting better because you can stop, you can reclaim your life, you can have a healthy sex life and it's never too late. That's the other thing. It is absolutely never too late to take a step in the direction of health. Oh, thank you. Alex, so much for coming on and saying that. I just think that- Oh, you're welcome. It's so filled with hope. If people want to find more out about you, how can they find you? If they go to centerforhealthysex.com, that's my website, and you'll find where my webinars are. We also have a YouTube channel where we've got hundreds of videotapes from sex experts from around the world talking about all manner of sexuality. So if you need an intro or you have questions about anything, I'm pretty sure you can find it there at this point. Yes, an excellent resource. Yeah, it really is a big database now. And I am giving a webinar today at noon on projection from Mirror of Intimacy. So you can find that there too. Awesome. So we have lots of resources. And also, if we can't help you, we will help you find a therapist in your area, anywhere in the country to get you started. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on. I'll also put all of that information in the show notes too. So people can go to theaddictedmind.com and click on those links as well. So Alex, thank you for coming on and sharing your wisdom. Thank you, Duane. I really appreciate it. And thank you for all the good work you're doing. All right, everybody, thank you for listening to The Addicted Mind. You can find all the show notes at theaddictedmind.com forward slash 87. Once again, please rate and review us on iTunes. I really appreciate it. And also join our Facebook group. Just go to Facebook and type in The Addicted Mind Podcast. Click join and continue the conversation there. And if you are interested, please share your story of hope on the podcast and just go to the website and click the link on the side that says share your story and give us a 90 second audio clip sharing some message of hope for others out there who are struggling. I want some voices on the podcast for other people to hear that recovery is possible, that people do get better and that people do change. So if that fits for you, please think about doing that. All right, everybody. I hope you have a great day and I will talk to you on the next episode. It's Erin. And I'm Michaela, and we're the hosts of the Two Sober Girls podcast, and we are on a mission to spill the wild truth about sobriety. 
Forget the rosé all day cliche. Sobriety is flipping amazing. Absolutely. It's not just about quitting the drink. It's a gift you give yourself and your loved ones. So what are you waiting for? Break up with that old toxic relationship with alcohol and let us show you the possibilities. And here's the thing. Everything your precious heart desires becomes way easier without the influence of alcohol. We're not just two sober girls. We're also wellness coaches. We're here to show you how to optimize health, lifestyle, and beauty, feel sexy and alive as F. So stay tuned because we're rolling out new episodes every Monday, wherever you get your podcasts and trust us. They have your name written all over them. We can't wait to share the magic of sobriety and wellness with you. Subscribe to Two Sober Girls Podcast today and come follow us on Instagram for behind the scenes action and send us a DM. We can't wait to meet you.